Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 311. Uh, today we kind of have a little bit of a shorter one, uh, certainly not as long as a colonial one. Still, it's pretty important, uh, particularly some aspects that um, you're going to tell I'm going to focus on one thing in particular, uh, Lord Dunmore's uh, proclamation, a lot more than uh, other things. But uh, this is about the American Revolution and its impact on African Americans. Impact of the American Revolution on African Americans. Uh, I'm not going to give too much background on the American Revolution or just get into, you know, the fighting and stuff because, honestly, that's not really as important. This is not a uh, colonial America class. Like, I'm not going to get into the revolution itself. But uh, if you don't really know about the American Revolution, uh, spoiler alert, uh, America wins. America, uh, the United States of America gets their freedom from Great Britain and uh, makes eventually makes a country we know today. So if you go over to your PowerPoint, you're going <coughs> to, sorry, my cough, uh, first picture, you'll see, you know, African-Americans fighting on both sides of the revolution. Uh, that is one thing. Uh, African-Americans do fight on both sides of the revolution. Uh, part of that is dependent upon geography. Also, part of that is dependent upon uh, just various situations. Um, African-Americans are very much involved in the revolution. Now, what causes the revolution? Well, what really causes the uh, revolution is the French and Indian War, also known as the Seven Years' War. Um, some call it the First World War because uh, there's aspects of it going on in Europe as well. Uh, the War of Spanish Succession. I'm not going to ask about the European side. You don't need to know about the European side. Just know it's a very big conflict. Um, to kind of let you know what's going on, we need to set the stage. Uh, in fact, if you go over one more slide, you will see a, a very, uh, very, very uh, good map that helps you out. You see, the American colonies, the, uh, the 13 colonies we know and love, uh, you know, the first 13 states, they were under control of Great Britain. Great Britain is there. And then France also has a lot of land as well. There's a lot of land in the, uh, the New World, a lot of, a, a lot of uh, new, new France, if you will. Uh, around the Mississippi Valley, Ohio River Valley, a little further west, part of the Missouri, things like that. Part of the Missouri River, I should say. Um, actually, yeah, the state of Missouri as well. But you can see that kind of like darker green. And, and New France, as you see, also has much larger possessions as well. Now, what ends up happening, what ends up happening is that the French don't have extensive colonial possessions. Uh, that is one thing you need to know about France. I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier in colonial times. Uh, France is never highly populated uh, in its American colonies. The, the New World, with the exception of New Orleans, but New Orleans was always the exception. Um, France doesn't have that much. They don't have like an extensive amount of population there. Their land holdings are huge. Oh my gosh, land holdings are huge. But there's never a very high French population there. Now, the type of things that the uh, the French are doing, mainly fur trade. Uh, basically, they, they get with the various Native American tribes who trap beavers and stuff. And they're also fairly close with the Native Americans. Uh, the French generally tend to have a less antagonistic relationship than the English. Uh, there's a lot more intermarriage between um, Native Americans and the French and also, pretty much the children of those unions pretty much just become straight Native American or Indian. They, they don't really... They're, like, I, like I said, for, with the exception of New Orleans and a couple forts up, up north, um, the French don't have that much. Now, what causes this conflict in the New World? What causes this conflict in the New World? Uh, part of it is the Ohio River trade, but there's another part of it. There's another part of it. You see... 
<clears throat> the British straight up told, they straight up told the, uh, the various settlers, remember uh, with Bacon's Rebellion, the kind of disaffected, non-landowning individuals, those kind of non-landowning individuals, um, they want good land. They want good land. That's going to be the issue always. They want good land. They want more land. They want land that's navigable. And they see that if you go further west, like towards French possessions and also, honestly, Native American possessions, there's pretty good land to be had, and it's theoretically not being used, quote-unquote. I mean, it's still under the claim of the French and also the Native Americans, but they're not farming it. They're not living on it long-term. Remember, the French are more interested in the fur trade, in the fur trapping trade. And so, basically, there's a lot of border skirmishes between the French and the, and the, uh, and the British and the colonists. Also, the Native Americans get involved, too, over this, quote-unquote, good land. If you can see that kind of... Uh, crisscross green and orange land on the map on the left. That's kind of this disputed area, modern-day Kentucky, modern-day Tennessee, um, parts of the Ohio River Valley. A lot of dispute where basically the British are trying to encroach. And this is not the like the elites by any stretch. This is kind of the, the dregs of society. These are the disaffected, you know, former indentured servants, uh, poor whites. You could call them white trash. That's what they called them. White, that's actually where the term white trash comes about. This idea that, you know, landless white people who want land, quote-unquote good land, uh, that has rivers and, you know, is pretty lush and you could farm, and they see it not being used by the French and the Indians. <clears throat> and basically this causes a conflict. Now, like I said, it's, there's also a European side to it. In fact, that's probably the bigger, most important part is the European side. Don't, don't worry about that. Just know that's what's going on in the New World. What ends up happening is a war that lasts for eh, about seven years or so, about a seven years war. <laughs> Uh, basically, what ends up happening is Britain uh, theoretically wins, quote-unquote. They win, quote-unquote. Um, basically, France gets out of, uh, of North America. They pretty much get out of North America. They're later going to get part of it back uh, before Louisiana Purchase. Uh, the, the, the Haitian Rebellion has not happened yet, so... That map on the right is not what stays because France is actually going to get a lot of it back because Spain gives it to them. Uh, they, give, they give New Orleans to the Spanish. That's a big thing that later starts up the Louisiana Purchase is that uh, they, everybody wants New Orleans and the French are not comfortable with giving it to the British because they think it's too valuable, so they give it to the Spanish. And uh, they also get Canada. They also get Canada, which uh, becomes an English possession. Um... Uh, this is like where the Cajuns come from because they're expelled from uh, Acadia, which is a French-speaking area. Well, Canada's pretty much all French, and then the English come in, kick them out, send them to various places, including South Louisiana. But the main thing I want you to know is that wars cost money. Wars cost a lot of money. Wars are very expensive. Wars cost a lot of resources, uh, material, manpower, and honestly, money. Wars cost money, and Britain has just fought a war, a very expensive war, a super expensive war, that branched two continents for seven years, pretty much because people didn't stay where they were supposed to. Because various British colonists are going over further west than they were told. In fact, whenever the peace does come, even though Britain theoretically owns all that territory on the right, they set a line at the Appalachian Mountains that says pretty much British colonists do not cross this. Do not cross this line. 
You're going to get too far from supplies. Uh, you're going to mess with the Native Americans who we don't want to mess with because we don't have the resources because we just fought a very long and expensive war. Now, the problem is where do you get money for this? The colonies of themselves are not super profitable. I mean, some of them are. Some of the northern ones are. And, of course, tobacco is very profitable. But they're not, like, crazy profitable. You, you, you can't make enough money off of the profit itself to do an easy tax. So, basically, Britain has to get creative with the taxation. Britain has to get creative with the taxation. Also, they want to have more control over the colonists because they don't want them going further west this is the type of disaffected persons that are uh, that you see in uh, Bacon's Rebellion. It's just later. Basically, even though there's that line of demarcation, basically where it says, you know, you should not go further west uh, than the Appalachian Mountains, uh, there are people in the colonies, British colonists, these, you know, disaffected white persons who don't have enough land or feel they don't have enough land or they don't have good land or don't have any land. Uh, basically, they are like, no, we want to go west. And Britain's saying, please do not go west. We don't have the money or the resources to support you if you start messing with Native Americans and they decide to fight back. Like, there's plenty of land uh, between, you know, New Spain and, uh, and Britain and that kind of middle area between the line of demarcation and the Mississippi River. It's theoretically British possessions, but they have no desire to really settle it. They want to, like, hunker down, build up their reserves, pay off their massive, 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 massive debts from the war... And the colonists don't like this. Because you see, before this, the colonies were kind of left alone. Like, you know, Britain would get some money from the tobacco and things like that. They didn't really get taxed that much. There were some rules, but yeah, they didn't really follow them too much. However, now that the colonists just cost the British a ton of money, Britain's like, yo, we, we got to have some rules. We have to have some rules. We have to get everything set in stone. So what ends up happening is things like the Sugar Act of 1764, where they, they start taxing sugar, or the Stamp Act in uh, 1765. Various taxes. Various taxes. Now, here's the thing. The Americans are not opposed to paying taxes. You always heard that this war was about taxation. Eh, it was. But they're not opposed to paying taxes. They understand wars cost money. They understand that, you know, the colonies cost Britain a lot of money and that the British government, the British military, spent a lot of money and a lot of resources on their behalf in a war that should have mainly been fought in Europe. However, the colonists don't like the way it's implemented. Some, some radicals just hate taxation at all, but a lot of them don't think it was implemented well. The fact that they have no representation in Parliament, uh, the idea that they're called British citizens but they don't have the full rights of British citizens, things like that. This starts having a lot of protests against these quote-unquote oppressive British laws. Um, a big one is the Boston Massacre that happens in 1770. That's not really about the taxation. That's more about more British troops staying in America to enforce the various taxes and things. Uh, basically, there's a riot in Boston where uh, some youths start um, throwing snowballs. One of them has a rock at British soldiers who are stationed to serve as police. They run, they run around, they catch the use. There's a mob that forms. Uh, the British fire into the crowd. They fire into the crowd, killing five, including one Crispus Atticus, who was a black man. He was a former slave. Crispus Atticus, he's considered the first person to die in the American Revolution, the first patriot. Uh, the, 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 uh, the British soldiers are actually acquitted of crime. Uh, they're actually 
gotten off by the best lawyer in the colonies, one John Adams, uh, who later becomes a president. Uh, later on, the Tea Act of 1773 also reinvigorates a lot of this rebellion and upsetness. Uh, pretty much, tea was you know a drink that everybody had. Uh, the British gave a monopoly to one company, the, the East India Company, which uh, was going to give cheaper tea for everybody else, and you know there's going to be a tax on it. However, they prevented all other tea companies from coming in. Uh, the colonists were pretty fond of smuggling and uh, other things like that. So even though the tea was cheaper, it was the principle. And so basically, these so-called Sons of Liberty, who are basically uh, you know various white British colonists, dress up as Native Americans. Uh, God, ask me about that sometime in class, and we'll get into the whole dressing up as Native American thing. They dump the tea in protest in Boston Harbor, the famous Boston Tea Party. Uh, however, after the Boston Tea Party, various you know leaders, uh, a bit more respectful folks, are coming together. They said maybe we can have a Continental Congress because British does, the British do not allow us a seat in Parliament. They demand the tax be repealed in 1774. In response, they make a new one. Uh, this is all you know, kind of leading up to basically it, it, it breaking out at Lexington and Concord. Basically, the British come in because they hear that there's a militia forming. Look, I'm not going to get into all this. Like I said, this is not really that important. I mean, it is important to America. Uh, what, what they do get into, though, is basically you have another battle back Bunker Hill. Uh, open rebellion comes out. Uh, George Washington, uh, he was a former general. Well, not a former general. He was a colonel in the British military. Anyway, he is one of the richest. Actually, he is the richest man in the colonies. He gets his uh, real notoriety during the French and Indian War um, as a commander for the British. Uh, he's, you know, he, he's probably the best known person in the colonies. And pretty much they say, hey, George Washington, we want you to lead our military. Um, you know, the colonies declare independence, you know, July 4th, 1776, war becomes revolution. They try to throw them off. Like I said, I just gave the most Spartan uh, basic analysis of the American Revolution. Trust me, I know a lot more about it. I'm just keeping it quick so we can get on to the juicy stuff for black history because none of this really impacts black people or has a lot of black people in it until right about now. Okay, the Declaration of Independence was written by one Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was like Mr. Enlightenment. He is Mr. Enlightenment. He is big time and all these revolutionary thoughts, you know, in, in humankind is going to be, you know, has a capacity for greatness. John Locke, all this good stuff. The thing is, the reason he's able to read all this stuff, the reason he's able to, like, have such higher level thoughts is because he has a lot of free time. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is kind of a young heir. He has a massive plantation and massive slave holdings that he didn't necessarily buy. He got it the old-fashioned way by inheriting it. But he expanded it immensely. You know, his, uh, his home at Monticello, uh, it is, you know, it, it, it's an opulent place. It's considered like a very enlightened place. He's considered a great thinker. And so theoretically, that's the reason why he's able to do this. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, although he says a lot of stuff about, you know, human equality, doesn't think too much about African-American claims for equality. Uh, he does own slaves. In fact, he is... Uh, in a long-term relationship with one of his slaves later on, um, Sally Hemings. He has several children with her, uh, some of whom he acknowledges as his heir, and some of them he does not. So, go figure with that. Uh, he does not believe that black claims for, human, uh, for, for freedom. Uh, he holds that black people should be slaves. 
in spite of this, though, a lot of African-Americans who hear about the revolution kind of get caught up in the fervor. Uh, they hold that no, human equality does belong to them. They say, no, we're human beings. You know, wh whenever they, they read in the Declaration that all men are created equal, things like that, they're like, no, 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 that, that, uh, that's, that, 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 that applies to us. We, we are all men. We, are, we, even though we're black, we are, we are human beings. You might call us a slave, but we are human beings. We bleed blood. You know, we, we have brains. We, we, are, we, are, we have the capacity for equality. The thing is, outside of Thomas Jefferson, uh, a lot of the people involved in the revolution, the, the elites, if you were, are also slaveholders. And they don't see a contradiction here. They, these, um, the slaveholders themselves don't see a contradiction. They don't think it's hypocritical at all, you know, for saying we believe in equality, but also holding a ton of slaves. Um, African-Americans feel otherwise about that. They say, no, that's kind of hypocritical of you. Uh, like I said, the Enlightenment is pretty big upon this. Uh, John Locke, he writes about human rights applying to all. John Locke is before the revolution. Uh, Locke isn't necessarily talking about race, though. He's just talking about people in uh, as, as a whole. Uh, Newton also kind of gets, you know, this idea of reasoning, the idea of rationality being used to, for politics. Uh, the, the English, well, I guess the patriots, you should call them, the, uh, you know, the, the rebels, if you will, uh, they claim that the British are trying to make them slaves. I don't, I'm not going to give you any examples. Eh, maybe I will. I don't know. Um, maybe I'll give you some examples in class. But if you look at the writing of the revolutionaries, one of the things that they are very afraid of, I mean, you can look in the, in the Declaration of Independence, is this idea that the British are going to enslave them. You see already that they hold the lowest form of human, not even human. They say that to enslave somebody is to take it away. It's seen as a bad thing. It's seen as something they don't want. It's almost like the worst thing that they can become is a slave. They claim that's one of the reasons why they need to get away from the British, is that these unfair taxes and things would turn these individuals into slaves, and that is something that they do not want. They claim that to be a slave is to have one's rights denied. Now, here's the thing. Are the people who are complaining that they're going to be turned into slaves already enslaving people? Yes. Yes, they are. 100%. It's very hard for these individuals to say, Oh my gosh, I don't want to become a slave. That's the worst thing ever. But yeah, I kind of already enslaved people. Like, <laughs> there's definitely a disconnect there. Now, like I said, some African-Americans do get involved in the revolutionary debate. Um, you know, some white people, for their, for their, for their faults, some people, particularly in the North, particularly whenever slavery is not an um, economic necessity, quote-unquote, like it is in the South, places like Boston, places further north, uh, or in New York City, where they have some slaves but not a ton, uh, they do realize that basically revolutionary principles, you know, what they're saying about John Locke and all men are created equal, kind of incompatible with slavery. Uh, some of them do free their slaves. Others say, you know what, maybe we should outlaw slavery in this new country. Even the Declaration of Independence, when it lists its grievances against the British, says they brought slavery to our shores. And so, you know, they, they acknowledge that slavery is not the best. Not the best. However, as I've said a million times, just because they're anti-slave doesn't mean they're pro-black. Now, you also have some slaves who uh, file what's called freedom suits. You can see at the bottom, freedom suits. Basically, slaves are using this new process to try to sue for their freedom. Basically, they want to go through the court system and argue that, hey, you know, y'all completely understand that slavery is a bad thing. You know, that is one thing that you're hearing quite a bit in all this revolutionary talk 
is that slavery is bad. It's incompatible with humanity, incompatible with the laws of God and the laws of nature. So because of that, we will sue in court for freedom. Uh, Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works, particularly in places where slavery is not seen as an economic necessity. You know, in places like Boston, places further north, New Hampshire, you do have successful slave suits. Uh, Generally just one slave, not an entire family, uh, certainly not on plantations. Remember, each colony is theoretically its own entity, and um, later on when they become states, they're theoretically their own separate country, quote-unquote, just bounded together. Uh, We'll get into that later. But I do want you to realize that they, they are able to use the legal system. It's not a ton, but it's not a non-zero number. African-Americans and white radicals are confronting British authority, basically saying, hey, y'all don't have the authority over us. You did enslave us, but we are free. Uh, this really depends upon where you are. As you can see in this picture, this is a drawing basically saying a black youngster getting involved in again, the Stamp Act in 1765. Uh, yeah, that, that is something that happens, is there are a lot of African-Americans, particularly in the North, who get involved in various protests against the British. In the South, not as much. Uh, the Black Enlightenment does happen. Uh, the Enlightenment, in general, is an increase of education, increase of like you know thought, rationalization, science, getting away a little bit from a religion. Uh, not fully away from religion, but the religion of just like, God does everything, don't question it type of thing. And so you have some of your first black intellectuals come about in this time period. Uh, this is an era in which amateurs could like really make serious contributions to human knowledge. Uh, they don't have a lot of schooling back then. I mean, they have some colleges, not a ton, but even something like being a doctor, you didn't really have to go to medical school back then. Uh, you know, people like uh, Jefferson and Franklin, they're just really rich and they have the freedom to do it. But you also have others with more limited resources. Particularly Phyllis Wheatley and Benjamin Banneker. Let's talk about Phyllis Wheatley for a second. Phyllis Wheatley was a slave. She was a former slave. Uh, she learned how to read and write. Basically, her master was like, you know what? I want you to learn the Bible. Later on, she, she gets her freedom uh, when her masters died. Uh, when her masters died, uh, she does poetry. She starts writing poetry as a slave. She starts writing poetry. She actually published the first book by an African American woman. Uh, she writes various things. Uh, what's interesting about Wheatley is that she is kind of arguing that basically African-Americans should adopt white culture. She's not really saying that African-Americans should remain separate. She's saying, you know, we should strip away our, our, our Africanness, our blackness, if you will, and adopt this kind of, you know, colonial white culture, if you will. Get on to Christianity, things like that. She's a big booster in Christianity. Uh, her most famous poem is actually one written later on when, uh, whenever George Washington dies. She writes a poem about George Washington after his death. Very famous. Basically where she's like, hey, you know, you know we're black, but you know, we, we appreciate you, George Washington. You're the father of our country, too. Uh, even though George Washington was a slaveholder and he actually had kids with his slaves as well, but yeah, that's that sort of thing. Uh, she doesn't really protest too, too much against slavery. That is another thing that she does. She acknowledges she's a slave, but she's like, yeah, but I got good things out of it. I learned how to read and write. I became a Christian. She says more masters should be like my masters in that regard. She doesn't really say too much about getting rid of slavery. It's mainly um, slavery should be more like my slavery, wherein, you know, I learned how to read and write. I got converted to religion and my masters do free me later on. 
Uh, another one you might want to know about. Oh yeah, you can see right there. That's her. Um, that is that is that is her her the first book ever published by an African American woman. There she is. Uh, her various poems. You can see the picture of her with a little painting of her. She is very small. She's quite short, by all evidence. Uh, you can see her being like a, a thinker. It's this idea that basically, even though she's a black woman in this time period, it's the opinion of them as a thinker. If that makes sense. In fact, it even says, you know, she publishes as a, as a slave. It says basically, you know, her name is Phyllis Wheatley. She's a Negro servant to John Wheatley of Boston in New England. Uh, yeah, straight up. She's a slave when she writes this. I mean, you can call it a servant, but she's a slave because she has to be freed. Uh, Benjamin Banneker is a free man. Benjamin Banneker is a free man. He is from uh, northern parts. He's like from Boston as well, or Boston area. Uh, he is born free. He is born free. He was never a slave. He is never a slave. Uh, he does in, in, uh, attend an integrated school. He attends an integrated school, uh, mainly because there aren't that many, you know, black people in general, so they wouldn't have a segregated school. Remember, they're still not like crazy about black people, even though there's no slavery. Uh, he inherits his land from a white grandmother. That provides him a bit of a basis that he could really start doing science stuff. He also is one of the ones who theoretically assimilates white culture. He doesn't really see that much um, solidarity with other African-Americans who are slaves. Uh, he's like, no, I'm a smart guy. I'm a free person. I'm not going to hang out with you just because we're both black. I, I think I'm different than y'all. Uh, he gains a lot of fame as a mathematician and astronomer. He puts out various... Um, Almanacs, uh, similar to like Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. He has his own almanac. Uh, he's the first black civilian employee of the U.S., of the, of the United States. Uh, he surveys the area that later becomes Washington, D.C. Uh, he surveys the area that later becomes Washington, D.C. He's the first black employee of the Civil Service. However, he does call out Jefferson concerning slavery. He's like, yeah, you say all this junk about freedom and independence and, you know, all men are created equal. You got a bunch of slaves. So even though he doesn't really feel solidarity with other African-Americans, he does recognize that slavery is kind of an ill. Now, here we go. The thing I've been waiting for. How do African-Americans fight in the War of Independence? In the War of Independence, how do they fight? Because a lot of them do fight. And pretty much, they will fight to whichever side gave them freedom, all right? Whichever side gave them freedom, they're the ones they fought with. Uh, in general, the Native Americans fought with the British. That changed here and there. Most Native Americans tried to stay out of it. However, most of the, most of the Native Americans thought, you know, the British are the ones trying to keep the loyalists, trying to keep the colonists from like invading our land and settling in the quote unquote good land. So the British are the ones who are like trying to enforce them to stay east of the Appalachian Mountains. So most of the more powerful Native American tribes, if they were going to get involved with the conflict, they got involved on the side of the British. In the South, African Americans fought as loyalists. Um, in the North, they fought as uh, on the side of the Patriots or with the Rebellion. Pretty much, whichever side thought they thought gave them the best chance of becoming free, that's where they fought. Now Washington, even though early on he's like, okay, whatever, he early on forbids African-Americans to enlist or re-enlist if they're already in. Uh, Washington does not want black folks in the military. He doesn't want black folks in the military. Why? Uh, mainly because of the social aspect of it. Remember, just because people in the North were not cool with slavery 
doesn't mean they were cool with black people. There was fear that basically there was there'd be armed insurrections of African Americans if they give them too much power and authority. Also, they also believed that uh, maybe African Americans were a bit cowardly or theoretically too stupid to be effective soldiers. That is something. That's a bias that lasts in the United States military for, God, until Korea or Vietnam? Uh, yeah, this idea that African Americans are somehow both too dangerous and also too unintelligent to train and equip with weaponry. So even though there are African Americans in the North who are willing to fight for freedom, who really do want their freedom, willing to enlist... And Washington, by the way, desperately needs soldiers. That's something you're going to find quite a bit in the American Revolution, is that um, Washington is always very short on soldiers. Uh, they don't ask for African Americans. They do not ask for African Americans. Um, you might have some African Americans fighting in militias, but like in the Continental Army, like in Washington's army, you're not going to find any African Americans early on, mainly because, uh, not necessarily Washington, I think Washington would just like the men, um, you know, just to have the manpower because he is, he is desperately short soldiers. But mainly everybody else is afraid that African-Americans would either, like, rebel and, like, kill everybody or they're too stupid and be ineffective. Now, for the loyalists, for the British side, the British are really, really, really trying to recruit African-Americans as a bit of psychological warfare. Basically, uh, in the South, if a slave, where, by the way, that's where more African-Americans are is in the South, basically slaves would run toward the British lines and the British would give a lot of them protection. Um, a lot of them would say basically, hey, if you fight for us, you will get your freedom. You know, we want you to rebel against your masters. It's a psychological thing more than it is like an effective tactical thing, if that makes sense. Like, getting former slaves to be soldiers was not necessarily a tactical advantage. I mean, the British were not like, okay, we're going to train these guys. Well, I mean, they had to train these guys. But it's not like, oh, they're naturally better fighters or like we're, they're going to come in ready to go. It's more like, hey, if we do this, it might freak out the slave masters and make them less effective. It'll cut down their money lines. Anything we can do to win this war, we'll do it. So in general, during the, the American Revolution, Many more African-Americans fought on the side of the British than the, uh, than the Patriot side or the, the Rebel side, the, the, the Colonial side, whatever you want to call it. Now, here we go. The thing that I promised you I would talk a lot about, a lot, a lot, a lot about, Lord Dunmore. Lord Dunmore's proclamation is up there with Bacon's Rebellion as most important thing you have never heard of. Lord Dunmore is the British governor of Virginia. All right. He is the British governor of Virginia. Virginia is the largest state in this time period that has the highest population in general. It also has the highest population of slaves. Um, South Carolina has the largest population by like per capita, like the largest percentage of the population of slaves. But if you want to talk about like what colony has the highest number of people and the highest number of slaves, it's Virginia by far. Virginia is the most profitable, it is the oldest, it is the biggest, most important colony in all of the New World, in all of, you know, New England, and all of, not New England, this is the northern part, but like, you know, in all of the British possessions, all of British colonial territories, Virginia is the most important, it has the highest slave numbers. So Lord Dunmore, he's the, he's the Lord, he is the, the governor, the, the royal governor of Virginia, he issues a proclamation 
that tells all the slaves in Virginia, of which there are tons. Remember, there are more slaves in Virginia than any other states, even the ones that have higher percentage of African-American, even the states that have a majority black population, their sheer number is not as large as Virginia. He says, hey, slaves, how's it going? Lord Dunmore here. Uh, if you fight for me, if you turn against your masters, I will give you your freedom. So it's basically, I don't care how long you've been enslaved. I don't care what your situation is. If you run away, if you decide to join my military, fight against your masters, I will give you your freedom. Now, here's the thing. This is not a purely military tactic. In fact, its tactical value is small. This is mainly a psychological weapon against the slaveholding rebels. This is a screw with their minds. This is to break their morale. Because here's the thing. Why would somebody want to go against their potential former slaves? You know, they are playing in, the British are playing with the, with the Native Americans, sorry, with the colonial Americans' worst fear. The worst fear is a slave rebellion. The worst fear is a slave insurrection. And so basically, Dunmore is playing on their nightmares. Dunmore's no dummy. Dunmore knows that the population of Virginia has a huge slave population, and the masters are terrified of the slaves rebelling. He's going to use it against them. He wants to break the morale of the Virginians. And guess what? Dunmore gets a lot of people. All of a sudden, slaves across Virginia are like, yo, we're, we're going to Dunmore. We're, we're going to join the British side. You know, we will be, get a chance to fight for our freedom, get away from here. And guess what? They fight. Quite a bit of various corps of former slaves fight for Lord Dunmore in Virginia. And here's the crazy part, because the British do not win. All right? The British do not win this war. All right? Spoiler it. We, you know, we, we speak English, but we're not part of Great Britain anymore. The British don't win. But Dunmore is actually as good as his word. Dunmore tells the, basically, he's like, hey, all these people who fought for me, all these loyalists, black and white, they get to leave. They get their freedom. The soldiers who fought, the black soldiers, the former slaves who fought for Lord Dunmore, they were not re-enslaved. So even though they lost, they kind of won. You know, remember, for, for most African Americans in the, in the American Revolution, they didn't fight because they were like a get mad against taxation or they really loved the, you know, the United States or they loved Great Britain. It was more pragmatic. It was who's going to give us our freedom? Who do we think has the best chance of giving them their freedom? And Dunmore, even though the British lost, he made sure, hey, all these guys who fought for me, I promise their freedom, give them their freedom. They get to leave. They go to places like Canada. Uh, some of them go back to Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa. Uh, you know, some of them go other places. Some of them go to, like, England. Like, legit, Dunmore does it. Now, in response to Dunmore, Washington feels like, oh, crap, I have to allow black veterans to re-enlist. I have to allow more black people to get involved with it. Because now he's saying, hey, black soldiers, you know, in general, or, you know, they're like, hey, maybe we can go for the British because they seem to be more fair towards us. Uh, Washington is also not offering this to slaves. He is not offering freedom to slaves, I should mention. 
Uh, there's a Mel Gibson movie that came out eh, before you were born called The Patriot that shows uh, you know a slave getting his freedom for fighting with the with the uh, with the colonials. That never happened. Um, never. <laughs> however, however, Washington feels you know what we desperately need the troops. Dunmore's using this as psychological warfare against the African American population. He feels all right. We should let black people at least reenlist if they've already served before. Maybe they can reenlist. Uh, later on, because troops were always an issue for Washington, it was very hard for him to get the number of troops that he was promised, uh, they decided, you know what, we can allow the the recruitment of black soldiers. Mainly in New England, mainly around Boston, uh, you have a lot of black patriots getting involved. Uh, let's see. Black patriots do fight for the patriots in a lot of major battles. Uh, only Maryland, which actually had a decent slave population, and it was theoretically not like the colonial army, it was a state army, allows slaves to serve in exchange for freedom. Some of them do take it up, not too, too many, though. Way more get involved with Lord Dunmore's thing in Virginia. Also, a master could send their slaves a surrogate. That is something that definitely happened. Basically, if there was a draft or something, a master could send their slave in exchange of them. Uh, the black people who do who do serve though are generally in integrated units, at least for the for the uh, for the rebel side. On the British side, they sent, they generally serve their own unit. It was a segregated unit. Uh, Lord Dunmore soldiers were in a, their own segregated unit. Uh, however, for the Patriots, just because there really aren't that many African Americans fighting for the Patriots, uh, they are in integrated units. Um, none of them are officers or anything, but uh, you know they're treated. They're treated equally as everybody else, which is not great because everybody's starving and they don't have a lot of resources. <laughs> also, black women do support the Patriot cause, doing things like making uniforms, serving as nurses, and also spying. There's quite a bit of spying that gets done. Now, in the midst of all this, uh, emancipation efforts are really growing hardcore. All right? Hardcore. Uh, part of this enlightenment stuff, talk, part of this talk of you know rebelling against the British... Uh, throwing off one's chains of slavery really makes uh, emancipation talk go a lot higher, particularly in the North. Particularly in the North. Uh, you know, some various white people, they, they start kind of think it's a more of a Christian duty to get rid of slavery. It might be in their self-interest to get rid of slavery. It might help your soul. Also, economically, um, it's going to be a theoretically more fair playing ground to get rid of slave labor. Uh, probably the ones who are biggest against slavery and are always the biggest against slavery are the Society of Friends, better known as the Quakers. Uh, they call themselves the Society of Friends. Everybody else calls them the Quakers. Uh, they are never for slavery. They are 100% always abolitionists. They're also anti-violence. They believe that slavery is sinful, and they go whole hog in trying to get rid of slavery. They're kind of the exception to the anti-slavery does not mean pro-black thing because they actually are pro-black. They are cool with black people. They'll allow black members as, black people as members. They'll, they allow black equality. Uh, they help black people navigate the legal system. They're, they're kind of the exception to that rule I said, just because you're anti-slave doesn't mean you're pro-black. They actually are anti-slave and pro-black. And you can see the free black population explodes after the revolution. By the time we get to 1880, you have a much bigger black population. It's pretty much a free black population, I should say. It's about doubled, uh, mainly in the northern states that really start uh, abolishing slavery. Uh, you know, by the time you get to like 1800, I want to say like New Hampshire has like a slave. Like it, it's pretty much everybody else is free. Uh, the revolutionary impact. The war ends. America wins. Uh, 
theoretically improves African-American prospects. Uh, for instance, in the North, they're getting rid of slavery pretty much across the board. Uh, other or, if you're a slave, you might have the chance to you know, gain freedom through the court system. If you're in Maryland, you might get a chance to fight for it. Um, in the South, in the South, uh, slaves escape. All right, slaves escape. And in Virginia, I guess in response to Lord Dunmore's thing, and they don't want a rebellion, uh, what slaves who do fight for the, for the Americans in Virginia, which is like three dudes, uh, they are also given their freedom. They're also given their freedom. They don't get to leave Virginia, though. They, they have to hang out in Virginia, which isn't the best long term because slavery comes back pretty hard. I should mention slavery actually is getting more entrenched in the South, but there's more communities to help you out whenever you do decide to escape. Uh, the tobacco does go down during uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, basically, people don't want tobacco because it's kind of a luxury good during warfare. Uh, because there's less war- workforce and less demand, um, there's a smaller workforce. Slaves get kind of freed or they get turned into tradesmen. Also, uh, the war does increase uh, maps for absenteeism, the idea of that separation, kind of like the task system I was talking about with South Carolina, or if you have masters going off to warfare. Um, And Southern black majority grows. In states like Virginia, particularly South Carolina, um, the black populations do go up quite a bit. Also, there's a new concept that comes around in places like Virginia called being hired for your own time, where basically a slave is allowed to work for wages uh, for somebody other than the master. The idea being, if there's not enough work to justify a slave uh, working for a master, like there's really nothing to harvest, a slave is allowed to rent out their own time, to, to work for somebody else, and keep a portion of those wages for themselves. Uh, that that's a big thing. Um, a, sl- a master owns a slave's labor for the master's house, like 100%. However, if you if a slave's like, hey, you know, I, I, Farmer John, I hear we're out of tobacco to pick, but, uh, you know, Farmer Dan's house down the road, he's willing to pay me, you know, 50 cents a bushel to, to pick tobacco, um, the master would probably go along with it because the master's going to get a, a fairly small percentage, too. It's not a large percentage there. It's about, uh, you know, maybe 5-10%. So it's it's a fair benefit for the slaves to do this. Also, it allows them to possibly build up enough money that they can theoretically buy their freedom. So it's, it is definitely some increased prospects for slaves in this time period. Also, this, the mindset of the revolution really starts impacting free black populations, particularly around the Chesapeake, Maryland and Virginia. Remember, Maryland freed those who uh, they could fight in exchange for their freedom, and Virginia just freed some. Uh, they basically start moving to places like cities. They, they get away from the farm, from the rural areas. Uh, these free black people want to go to cities. There's a greater sense of community there. Uh, more chances to like really have some freedom. Places like uh, New York, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. Really, New York has a very large free black population. However, once they get there, they realize prospects are kind of hard. Um, they may not have a lot of training or skills. Uh, it's very hard for them to get capital. They do have some communities that can support, support them, but they're not the biggest. They're not the biggest. A lot of them do end up returning to their masters, not as slaves, but as like workers or um, not quite sharecropping, but like hired help. Uh, in the South, a lot less independence outside of like New Orleans and Charleston. Uh, if you do have a free black in, if you do have a free black person in the South, they're generally a child of a white slave owner. Uh, generally, it's you know a, a white master who had the slave, got a slave pregnant, and then basically it's their child. 
depending on the mastery, depending on the area, they could have varying degrees of freedom and independence. And I, I mean, like for instance, in a place like New Orleans, remember New Orleans is always the exception. Uh, you know, the, the black child of a white master could pretty much be on the same level as the master, honestly. He could, he could inherit everything. He or she could inherit everything. You have a very large communities of Cre uh, Creole, people of color, very wealthy people of color, slaveholders, elites in New Orleans. Uh, places like Charleston, you have some. Other places in the South, you don't have too many. And plus, it's becoming more plantation-centric. There's not a lot of urbanization in the South in general. I should also mention African Americans do start taking on new names to signify freedom. Uh, basically, once they get their independence, they want to take on a new name, uh, get rid of their master's name, get rid of their slave name. Uh, a lot of times they take on new last names. Uh, probably Washington is probably the big one uh, because he's the father of the country, theoretically the one who got them free, even as we saw Washington had a kind of complicated relationship with this idea of freedom and African Americans. Uh, that's why the last name Washington, fun fact, uh, back in 1770, whatever, um, the, the last name Washington was like 95% white individuals had it. And the only people who had the last name of Washington was, uh, you know, the only black people who had the last name of Washington was like the slaves of the Washingtons. Uh, now the last name of Washington is like 90 something percent African American. There's not too many white Washingtons out there. So eh, go figure. In conclusion, like I said, during the revolutionary war, uh, African Americans do begin to gain freedom. They do begin to gain freedom in different ways, depending on the location, depending on the area. Um, things like Lord Dunmore's proclamation, which we're going to talk about a lot in class. You do have black leaders, black intellectuals coming about, and also the beginnings of free black communities. It's, it's a change. It's a change. It, it looks like maybe prospects are going to get better. Problem is, after the revolution, cotton comes around. And not just that, the demand for that free, cheap, good land. You know, white individuals wanting more and more land, wanting to get their own space, uh, messing with the Native Americans, this idea to keep expanding keeps going on, and it's going to cause more problems in the long run. But that's not what we're talking about right now. Right now we're just talking about the revolution. So this is Dr. Tully for History 311. Uh, be prepared to talk about Lord Dunmore's proclamation and also the whole people trying to get free land thing. All right, talk to you later.